Hey everybody, Doug Brown here and welcome to Conversations with Healthcare Heroes. This is a fascinating conversation I had with Dr. David Seichert of the Medical Group of the Carolinas, uh, Westside Internal Medicine, located in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, one of the cool things about this program is getting to hear people's backstories, you know, how they got into medicine, why they got into medicine, what that path into medicine looks like. And, and uh, this is a first, this is a unique one. I think you'll find uh, Dr. Seichert's uh, pathway into medicine is, is, is very cool. Um, unique and, and definitely different. Um, he is a, a, I find him to be a very deep thinker, somebody who probably connects with his, his patients on a personal level very well. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation. It is part one, uh, part two will drop uh, shortly. So hope you enjoy this. Uh, of course, as with every episode, the, the views expressed on this program are of the guests and the host. They are not meant to serve as medical advice in any way, shape or form. Individuals seeking medical advice, guidance, and expertise for questions and concerns related to their own personal health should always consult a physician. Without further ado, here's another episode of Conversations with Healthcare Heroes. Seichert, how you doing, sir? Thank you so much for joining. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, just to get started, give us a, a quick background on yourself. Uh, I know you're based in Spartanburg, South Carolina, but uh, give us a quick, quick bio, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. My path is a little bit of a curvy one. So um, I grew up in North Carolina in Burlington, where my dad was a primary care doctor there. Um, and then I ended up going to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. And then 12 years after that, uh, I had spent some time playing music and playing in a band. And so when that was all said and done, went to medical school at MUSC in Charleston. And then residency was at Chapel Hill uh, for a second stint uh, there at UNC. And then uh, right out of residency, took a job here in primary care with uh, Spartanburg Regional. Okay, fantastic. So that's a really interesting background. I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of diving in and hearing a little more of your story. Uh, did you have anybody in your family that was in medicine? Yeah, so um, it's funny how that evolves over time. Um, <laughs> really, uh, most of the formative people in my life were in medicine. So my dad, again, primary care doctor to start. He then went on to become a teaching uh, doctor and work in, you know, kind of wore a few hats there, research, teaching, and medicine. Um, my mom, was in nursing. My stepmom uh, is also a physician and did palliative care and internal medicine. And now here's my wife, who's a nurse practitioner. Uh, <laughs> two sisters are nurse practitioners, so it feels like uh, medicine's in the air. That's very cool. So it is, was going to medicine something you always thought you would do eventually, or you mentioned your, your path is a little bit different than, than some. Um, right. Yeah, it's funny. I think when I was younger, it always felt like that was sort of um, because that's what dad did. You know, that was going right. to be a convenient path. Um, and then there's nothing really convenient about this path, especially when you take 12 years to tour and play guitar in a band. Yeah. Um, found that to come back uh, required a lot of dedication, a lot of scratching and clawing. Um, but I think that made me appreciate it differently. So um, I'm thankful for that experience. I don't think everyone needs to take 12 years to do something that many people don't find related to medicine. I wouldn't recommend that path to others. Sure. Uh, but I do 
think that um, for me personally, it allowed me to grow a lot, see a lot, and, um, and then kind of value a little differently what it meant to not know medicine until I was 33 years old and then went to medical school at that point. That is, a, that, that is really interesting. So walk me through, like you're, you're in undergraduate. Yep. Are you, what do you, what do you, what's your major? What are the kind of focus areas? Yeah. So I felt like I was, you know, doing the march towards, uh, towards medical school. I okay. majored in biology, I minored in chemistry, all the, all those good things. I studied for the MCAT, took an MCAT my senior year of college. Uh, right around that time, um, this, you know, I would say loosely garage band. I mean, it was more of a living room band. We got offered an opportunity to record and to, uh, and to tour. And that was something that I sort of had this idea that, well, I could come back around to medicine later. That felt like a very easy and comfortable idea. But then, of course, the band was, you know, in my view, successful enough to uh, delay that plan about 12 years. And that's, yeah. a, um, that's a testament to that the band worked uh, in a sense, but also, uh, you know, you end up getting pulled pretty far away and it takes a lot to go back. Sure. So how old were you when you started getting into music? Yeah. So um, I was into music from as long as I can remember. I remember kind of growing up taking flute lessons, guitar lessons. <laughs> I thought the guitar lessons were cooler. Um, but then, uh, and then sort of, um, you know, finding really in college, a group of friends who were like-minded, you know, you can imagine college for me, I graduated high school in 1997. So right. you can think back to the days of Blink-182 in their heyday or Weezer or the Pixies and bands like that. And we, right. uh, right. our cues from them and, um, eventually got to meet some of those guys along the way. And oh, no kidding. It, was, it was just a blast. It was so much yeah. fun. So I see the guitars in the background, obviously, and I got to say that it is the coolest background of any guest that, that I've had so far, and it's probably going to be hard to beat. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, maybe uh, I could chalk it up to a, like a, a package Zoom background, but I'd be lying. No, it's, <laughs> no, no, that looks legit. So I, I collect too many things. These uh, golf clubs, which you had mentioned, yeah. some as well. Right. And um, I don't know why. I just think that collecting is a, is a fun thing to do. That's really, that's cool though. But so you're in college. Are you, are you guys, these are just friends of yours you meet through, through dorms or through just socially? Like how, how, how does the band kind of get together in the, in the first place? Yeah, great question. So uh, it really came out of um, a, a rowing team, the crew team. And no kidding. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the guys on the crew team and I became close friends. Uh, we started writing songs together. Uh, we were fortunate enough to meet, um, some other, you know, talented folks. We, I don't think we were talented, but we were driven and right. uh, we had a great time doing it, but it kind of happened like a lot of things, you know, you just kind of leave yourself open to opportunities and some of those came our way. Yeah. So is it the sort of thing that while you were in college, you guys played around, uh, is it Chapel Hill? You said, yeah. yeah. Did, did, yeah. Was it mainly Chapel Hill area? Did you go outside the, the kind of the triangle or in or, the early was that days, like? it was Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, the guy that sang in my band moved to Richmond, Virginia. Okay. And so then we were pretty much Chapel Hill and Richmond on an alternating basis. And then, yeah. And then it afforded us the opportunity to see, you know, mostly the East Coast. But, um, you know, we got on the road a good bit. OK. So how many guys were, were in the band total? Uh, four. Four of us. OK. And it was right. different lineups. We had um, we had four guys in the band. We then had three guys and a woman in the band. And, you know, those couple of different iterations were all called 
Khan chapter. Uh, and it was, um, you know, again, just something I will always hold near and dear to my heart and an yeah. experience that not many people get to have. I liken it to being a minor league baseball player. You know, we got to have a couple big league at bats, but um, ultimately we weren't uh, going into the Hall of Fame or anything like that. Yeah. So, but still, I mean, touring and, and you know, are you playing in, in uh, clubs and, and small arenas or what, what, what's the typical venue that y'all would, would play in on a regular basis? Yeah. I mean, a typical venue is um, kind of, I would say, a medium sized music hall um, in Richmond at the time. Um, yeah a great place called Alley Cats that I think is now defunct and has gone out of business. Oh. But again, a couple of the major league call-ups. I mean, we played a couple big festivals. Uh, yeah. We'd have streets blocked off. We played a couple, um, what I would generously call a stadium, or at least that was on the signage of the building. Um, <laughs> no, it was. Um, we can go with that. That's cool. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And so, that, that just seems like such an interesting journey, though, um, and, and there's just so many so many dynamics and things I think the average person probably doesn't understand about uh, about you know the music business and kind of what goes on behind the scenes and all that. Um, what was the things that you enjoyed most about that experience? Yeah, um, I think the best lesson is when uh, you know there wasn't quite a path to success. And I wouldn't call what we did, you know, raging success. So it's sort of learning yeah. struggle, learning about finding a path as opposed to, um, you know, a path being handed to you. And I think in medicine, that's actually a pretty good lesson. You know, sometimes there's really clear evidence of what to do. Sometimes there's not. And you have to forge a path and make some decisions based on the information you have and do the best you can. And I think those gray areas are what uh, drew me to medicine the most. You know, you're dealing with ethical issues you're dealing with someone a human being's preferences and so mm -hmm. you have all the all the data and the advice that you want and of course those things are going to be driven by your own personal experiences but in my view um you know negotiating that with the person who it impacts the most obviously the patient in front of me and their family um it's it's a gray area and that that was the lesson out of the band you're not always going to succeed there's not always a gilded path forward for you right um, you may have to grind and struggle a little bit. Your first idea may not be the best one. And I tell you, that sounds a lot like medicine to me. Sure, yeah. Well, it just sounds like a, a tremendous amount of personal growth and discovery, probably in that in that time period. Um, that I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of other ways to gain those lessons. But what a unique way, a unique path to to again forge ahead and and experience adversity and and all kinds of things. Um, you know, that probably prepared you for that next step. Yeah, it's it's important to, it's also just important to feed some interests at the right time. Mm. And I think for me, uh, at that level, at that age, at that level of maturity, those interests needed to be fed. And then that led what felt like in a really good way for me and to, you know, this career, and it allowed me the stability to succeed in it and have a little yeah. bit more confidence as an adult. Whereas maybe I hadn't felt like I had fully uh, to use a medical term, differentiated at that point. So sure, sure. Yeah, exactly what you said. I mean, there are a lot of ways to get that experience, and that was how it happened for me. Yeah. So what was it like going into medical school then? And you said you were what, 30, 32, 33? Right. I was um, you know, I, I like to say, you know, kind of you get you get that cold that makes your train roll, right? I think uh -huh. I felt very motivated to prove that I could still learn and 
do well on tests and get good grades. And I, and I think though that at that time in my life, that wasn't as important as the end goal. You know, I mm. want to be able to take care of the patient in front of me, a population of patients. You know, I see about 2,500 patients. So I want to do a good job for everybody, even if they're not right. that day. So, but that was the motivation for me a little bit was saying, look, I've got people 10 years younger than me on average all around me, and I want to be able to hang. And mm -hmm. some schools along the way would say, I'm not sure you have what it takes. I'm not sure that your credentials, you know, having played guitar for Conshafter necessarily meet our criteria. I get it. Um, yeah. But it, it was a really motivating factor to say, no, 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 this is really important to me. And I'll, I'll scratch and claw my way to the job that I want to get. So that was my, my next question is, is how many people or organizations or schools try to talk you out of this? Ooh, good question. Um, I, I remember, I remember once like in a nice way, right? I mean, they're not, not, not like, Oh, right. Yeah. You know, like they think they're doing you a favor. <laughs> exactly. I think the company line would always be, you know, um, you've got a really interesting background here and I'm not saying you're not going to be a fit somewhere, but you're not going to be a fit here. And mm. I, I liked that. I felt they were letting me down easy, but, um, right. you know, again, I think for certain people though, that's a, that's a real, motivating factor to hear no and mm. um but i think a couple of schools said that maybe there would be a fit there that maybe valued a little bit of a different uh path and um and luckily here i am so what was that process like then did you have a couple of different schools to choose from or was it you kind of knew you know musc was where you wanted to go how, how did that work out yeah great question. I mean, it's been a little while now, but I remember um, interviewing at places like Marshall and at MUSC and then, you know, the hometown school at the time in Richmond was VCU. Um, right. And then I had applied to DO programs, which I really valued. You know, um, I really was interested in more hands-on approach in some ways, a more what, what I would consider a more holistic approach in some ways. Now I, I got that through an MD program. Mm. Uh, but DO schools had appealed to me too. So, um, you know, after a series of interviews, I felt that MUSC was starting to have a budding primary care program. There were a couple of primary care focused, uh, both student led and then um, kind of attending led programs that I really felt, gosh, this place could be a great fit and leave a lot of doors open should I with experience decide maybe primary care is not the option, but what about you know, infectious disease or endocrinology or those yeah. sorts of uh, specialties. But ultimately what drew me in in the first place is what brought me through the whole process, which was again, you know, primary care prevention. How do we maximize access of care for people and that sort of thing. So tell me about that a little bit. You see the, the, the primary care, that was a, a focus of yours and you kind of knew that that's the direction you wanted to go even before med school or was that partway through? It made, for some reason, again, as an untrained, in a medical sense, as an untrained person, it made a lot of sense to me to say, how upstream can we get mm. in fixing some of the issues that we see in American culture of right. the types of illnesses that we face, uh, the types of diseases that perhaps education could play a role in preventing. Um, and then what seemed pretty clear to me to be some disparities along the way and yeah. how different demographic groups as we think about describing individuals by race or by sexual preference 
by gender. Right. And how some people don't necessarily get the same outcomes. And when I say don't necessarily, let's be more clear, they, uh, in a demonstrable way, don't get the same outcomes of care in certain situations that other people do. That felt unfair. It felt to me, the more upstream we get, the more we prevent, the more we educate that, um, that we were practicing medicine in a more effective way. Mm. We know in this country, we spend the most per person on healthcare in the entire world. So right. we're willing to make a humongous investment compared to anyone else in our health. Why do you think that is? Why do we spend so much? Yeah. Is it just the way the system is set up or? Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, so when you ask that question, I then go to outcomes. So our uh -huh. outcomes are in, you know, maybe the, the mid thirties, you know, and I'm, that's a ballpark, but yeah, you know, look at outcomes such as stroke rates, heart attack rates, longevity for the amount of money we put in that doesn't add up. So the system is expensive, but then the system isn't necessarily the most premium product for the money. Mm. So again, those are things that can bring someone like yeah. me to the table. And I just think, huh, that's interesting. You're willing to spend the most in the world, but you're going to settle for not necessarily the best product that you can get. Are, are these things, are these topics, things you kind of saw growing up as a kid, like, you know, that were discussed at the dinner table and, and did you have a, a, a more a little bit of a preview maybe to some of these issues compared yeah. to maybe some of your peers? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I alluded to the fact, you know, my dad is an internist yeah. and, you know, physician, teacher, clinician, all those things. And he uh, spent a lot of time looking at health disparities. And I think I grew up in an environment where I felt that, um, you know, that was that some of those inequities were something really worth dedicating a career and focusing on. And, you know, I certainly don't have those research chops, at least not right now. Uh, what I can certainly do is apply a lot of what I've heard, read, learned along the way yeah. uh, to impacting my patients under my care. And so, you know, hopefully people like my dad who do research and countless other people can feel good that people like me are applying it in an effective way. Yeah. What do you think in, in your experience and in, in the area, the geographic area in, in which you serve is the one of the most primary challenges in, in say the topic of health disparity or health inequity that you see day in, day out? Yeah. So, you know, I'm located in the upstate of South Carolina and I have the privilege of seeing just a, a variety of patients and we can divide that by income, by race, by sexual mm -hmm. preference, by gender, and even, you know, gender preference and things like that. So in, um, I think some of the biggest challenges that I see are in access. I've had patients who would love to come in and I work for Spartanburg Regionals. That's a private health system. Right. So, you know, how do people afford the care that I'm able to give? And I think that that's not a unique issue to this region, uh, but I've, I've just seen it where somebody loses their job and now we don't have insurance and mm. I'm not ordering all those labs, or maybe I'm not able to screen for some of the preventable cancers that we could screen for. And that's, you know, I think that's where we have to meet people is in creating um, a lot more access and make that access equitable. Um, and I think by doing that, the, the irony is I think by providing more access for more people, you actually save more money because you're preventing disease down the line. Looking at like a total cost ownership, if yeah. you will. Like not yeah. just the front end, but yeah. 
the big picture. I, costs. I think when you think about um, paying for healthcare, if you say I'm going to give everyone access, it feels like maybe you're throwing money away or handing somebody a benefit that mm. perhaps they haven't worked towards. And but really breaking the numbers down, but just that that pure access and the prevention piece, then you're not paying for that person to wind up on the emergency room steps years later with something that right. could have been preventable. And now you're paying 10 times the cost. We're all societally paying these costs eventually. So when do you want to pay? And I wonder if maybe that's one of the main factors that contributes to the, uh, that's such a high cost you alluded to earlier, right? Is yeah, how many of those patients end up in the ER and with chronic conditions that are, you know, kind of not, not beyond repair, but much more difficult to treat. Right. Exactly. I think um, in my view and with what I've learned and what I've experienced in practice in the real world with real human beings, I think that that's, um, that's one of the most critical issues is, um, you know, really honestly raising the bar for everyone. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, my wife and I talk a lot about adjectives. You know, you can talk about people by race, you can talk about people by sexual preference, you can talk about people by gender. But if you say, I'm going to elevate care for all people, regardless of the adjective, right. I, I think that everyone can buy into that, right? It's sort of like, but yeah, you, you're, you're looking out for me. And who doesn't want that? I mean, I think we all want that to feel sure. like if we're going to sign up for paying for something that it ought to benefit you and, and your tribe, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the other thing too, that I wonder about is the, the dynamic of the physician patient relationship and, and maybe speak to that. What, what, what have you learned over the years? And, and obviously you're still, you know, I'm saying not, not getting started. You've been practicing for what, about, about eight, eight years now since you, yeah, actually since med school. So I've been, um, so since medical school and then so, completing residency I so after residency so that's okay yeah, so four years so so what impact does that does that have on on making some of these differences like on a personal level right I think it's everything I I think that if it really boiled down to hey look you you input your symptoms I generate a prescription I've always had the view that a that a computer could do that effectively right so there's a human element to this and we started talking about that you know how do you negotiate yeah with you know someone who's not had medical training but they certainly have lived in their body a lot longer than you've gotten to know them right. i think it's the beauty of the whole thing i think it's the privilege of the whole thing um that someone's entrusting you to help with some options and in that room how do you allow that person to actually be comfortable with you mm. and i think for me that's been uh being really open and trying to present all the options as equal, you know, really not trying to insert my preferences, but look, we all have experiences and, you know, those experiences would bias kind of the advice I would give, say my parents or my family. Right. Uh, but it, it's, it's an, it's just amazing. You know, you, you know, these options, you know, someone's saying to you, these are some thoughts that I have. And um, if they actually trust you, take some of the advice and get a lot better. There's no better feeling than that. Mm. How long does it take typically to build that kind of trust with a patient? I mean, you're talking, you know, within one visit, couple visits, what, what typically do you find that pattern is like? 
there's definitely a variability there. Sometimes you click right off the bat. Mm. Sometimes you, you know, maybe I feel a distrust and, and I, I unfortunately don't necessarily know exactly what someone's thinking, right? I don't think my thoughts are the only thoughts in that room. Mm. Um, I, I have all these, you know, um, we were talking about golf and you have swing thoughts. I kind of have all these thoughts in a doctor's visit too. You know, I'm thinking the most dangerous thought in this room is mine. Mm. If, I, if I start to draw a conclusion, if I'm not thinking about all the possibilities, I've done you a disservice. So um, some people, I, my perception is that we've really formed a good bond in minutes. Yeah. Other people, it's been over several visits. And it, that also, you feel that pressure depending on the acuity of the situation. Is somebody really, really sick? And I'm advising them to go to the emergency room and they don't want to, but I think it may be life-saving. I've had that scenario. And I need mm. to build that trust in minutes. Other How do you do that? Ooh, um, Not to put you on the spot or anything, but. No, it's a great question. <laughs> I, I think it's being, um, you, you don't listen to what you don't hear. Or you don't hear what you don't listen to. So I think it's being open-ended. Okay. What, what are you worried about right now? What are you thinking right now? Mm. Um, how sick do you feel like you are right now? Um what made you come to me today? Those sorts of things and really kind of getting at the motivations of the situation. And um, I think to start broadly like that is better as opposed to, so wait, why don't you go to the emergency room? You know, your life is in danger. That feels right. very accusatory. So just maybe, maybe starting with something um, a little bit more open-ended. Is that, are those tactics that you learned in, in residency and medical school or are these things you picked up from your dad and, and other mentors. I'm just curious. I, all of it. I mean, all of it, yeah. There's, there's certainly. Um, I have, I imagine every program would train to do, you know, yeah. some motivational interviewing and open with open-ended questions. But but I think sometimes when um, when it's a real situation and a real person involved, you may not necessarily follow the training. Hmm. So. It's been, it's just been a lot of growth and a lot of feeling like maybe I could have done this or that better. So it's my own experience combined with people who have taught me, my dad, obviously, yeah, one of the more notable people on that list. And then, um, you know, the formal curriculum in school, definitely. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. That's good to hear. I, I was, I always wondered that, you know, cause you have so many different types of personalities of, of anybody in any profession, but particularly within, within medicine, um, you know, it, it just seems like so much of, you can have so much knowledge, right? But if that patient doesn't connect with you, it, it, it's got to be very difficult to, to influence them, I would think, in a positive way, right? Um, no matter how much you know about their condition. Um, so, that, yeah, you guys have to be cut from a special cloth. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, I, I, I think... Um... I think also if you really, really have a good understanding of what's going on with somebody, you should be able to uh, communicate that to them and their options in a way that are tailored to them and are understandable. You know, I, I think medicine is a really broad field. There's new mm. discoveries all the time, new medicines, new labs, new tests. But at the end of the day, I think what's impacting that one person, if you can really make sure you've got your head wrapped around it, you should be able to communicate that really well to them. Um, and I'm, I imagine I and everyone else 
have missed opportunities to do that the best way. And so you just are constantly working on that aspect of the craft. And then I think the medical knowledge should be assumed. Mm-hmm. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't come out and hang your shingle and see people who entrust you with good decisions and not know what you're talking about. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, in, in that, you know, you constantly in your spare time looking at it, new research and reports and, and journals and things. And are there certain disease states you find yourself kind of researching more and, and, and being drawn towards? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I think about, um, there have been some rare things that I've seen. And when I've seen those things, I make sure that I pull them up and read about them. And then when you've met somebody impacted by something, it really sticks with you differently than when you learned about it in medical right. Um, but where I really spend the most time reading are in the really common things that I see. And there's a lot of discovery in terms of things like heart failure interventions and medications. Um, yeah. There's been a lot of movement in, you know, even for me in training in medical school, uh, diabetes medications, um, that's an area that has really exploded. And um, I think that we can tailor a lot of medications to uh, focus on goals like weight loss and you know, whether somebody's more interested in taking a pill or having a shot. And then another right. big area, of course, is mental health. And we're yeah. seeing a lot of nicer therapies that seem to uh, allow people to live the full life that they want to live unburdened by whether it's depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar issues, things like that. It's, um, it's just great to see people actually feel better and have some of those options that they're uh, at their fingertips. Do you think that on the mental health side, is it a function of, or, or more people comfortable coming to physician to have that discussion than maybe years past? Are we, are we, are we kind of diagnosing more because more people are coming in or um, is it just, are we getting better at diagnosing certain patterns and things through family history or behavior? Yeah. It's uh, um, I wonder that sometimes is, are we just seeing a, an increase in the prevalence of mental health issues? Is it perhaps a societal pressure? Mm. You know, you, you may even read about things where some of the environmental factors around us could have endocrine implications or neurosignaling implications. Right. Those things are really interesting. Or are we getting better at identifying it? Or, and or what I hope is happening is a bit of destigmatizing some of these issues as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think it may be a combination of all those things. Uh, and all I know is if somebody is willing to open up about it and you feel like you can treat it, that that's, that's a good feeling. And I'm left with the thought of, you know, how many folks do I interact with that you could make feel better that don't talk to me about it. Right. Right. Yeah. It just seems like such a, uh, I mean, black beans simple but just such a complex issue and and so many different layers and and you know uh, every obviously every patient is different but um yeah it, it's not like you can just identify a pattern that people have and say oh you, you fit in this box and you fit in that box i mean i would i would imagine that takes a a good deal of of time and understanding to really you know and then figure out what are the resources that, that this patient needs versus a different patient Right. Um, you're, you're thankful when somebody meets the textbook definition of something, but unfortunately that's, uh, that's more rare. Yeah. And, um, so again, I, um, I think 
live to fight another day. If you got the diagnosis wrong or the medicine's not working, always keep an open mind. Uh, my thought, my initial thought's not always the right thought. Uh, but I think if we are willing to constantly reassess, then we um, hopefully are helping more people. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for part one of our two-part conversation with David Seikert of Westside Internal Medicine in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Be sure to check out part two, which is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To learn more about conversations with healthcare heroes, follow us on YouTube at Healthcare Heroes Show. Please direct all show inquiries to healthcareheroeshow at gmail.com.